0: today we uh, we finish our summer series and uh, I, I promised nine weeks ago that if we were having a summer series the weather would hold out for that long and I think we've done a pretty good job actually so uh, so I'm thinking next year maybe kind of May to October as a summer series um, we'll see how we do but um, our summer series has been Joseph kingdom living in a hostile world and uh we've covered an awful lot of ground and i am not going to recap it if you want to recap read genesis chapters 37 to 50 uh it will do it a lot more be- uh, in a lot more detail than i'll be able to but suffice to say it's been a bit of a roller coaster this uh, this journey this life of of joseph as we've looked at his life um all sorts of ups and downs and uh we got to the point last week where we looked at joseph being reconciled to his brothers Forgiveness was offered by Joseph to his brothers, and there was some reconciliation there. And uh, we've then skipped on a few chapters. So I need to tell you what happened in order to make chapter 50 make sense. Basically, what happened was Jacob, who is Joseph's father, um, was told about Joseph. And, uh, and he brought his whole family down to Egypt. There are about 70 of them. And so they come down to Egypt and they're given the very best land to live in, and they prosper. That's what happens. And then when we get to the first half of Genesis chapter 50, this final chapter of Genesis, we read that Jacob dies. And uh, it's... It's quite an interesting account. There's an awful lot of weeping and mourning. There's an awful lot of embalming, 40 days worth. There's an awful lot of funeral, 70 days worth. Then they have a massive procession where the whole family and half of Egypt all go up out of Egypt and bury Jacob back in Canaan. And then they all come back again into Egypt. So it's pretty, you know, it's a, it's a full on affair. And then... We come to the end of the story. And this story, sorry if you haven't read the chapter, I'm going to spoil the surprise, but this story ends as every biography ends. Joseph dies. So thank you, Lord, for... No, there there is more to say about it. Um, Because even in the fact that Joseph dies, he's an example for us. And I think he's an example of kingdom living which is our kind of uh, title of our summer series. So let's read the passage, Genesis chapter 50, verses 15 to the end. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong we did to him? So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father charged before he died, saying, thus shall you say, to Joseph, please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong. And now please forgive the transgressions of the servants of your God, of the God of your fathers. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide comfort for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke Kindly to them. Now Joseph stayed in Egypt, he and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph saw the third generation of Ephraim's sons. Also, the sons of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were born on Joseph's knees. Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die. But God will surely visit you and bring you up from this land to the land which he promised on oath to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry my bones up from here. So Joseph died at the age of one hundred and ten years and he was embalmed and placed in a coffin in Egypt. I think we should pray. Our God, we, we love your presence. We love the fact that we can gather as your people and you come amongst us. You meet with us. We thank you for, for the climax of that worship, focusing on the cross and what lies beyond that. Life for us and life eternal with you. And so now, God, as we turn to this passage, Would you speak deep into our hearts? Would you lay down lessons in our lives? Would you put in place foundations of faith that we can live on and build by? And so we pray each of us would be changed because we've encountered you this morning. Amen. So faith is a key element of kingdom living. It's a, it's a major characteristic of kingdom people. And uh, we enter this kingdom of God, which we've been looking at as a church for quite a while now. We enter the kingdom by faith. We often refer to it as saving faith. Uh, Paul in Ephesians writes, by grace you've been saved through faith. And that's not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. But faith isn't just how we enter the kingdom. It's not kind of, I came to faith in May 1985. It's not that kind of, that's part of it, but there's so much more as well. Faith is also how we walk in the ways of the king. That's kingdom living. So it's how we enter the kingdom, but it's how we continue in the kingdom as well. This way of the king, and we walk by faith and not by sight. But faith is a gift of God. It's not something we conjure up. Um, But it is something that we can develop and grow. I've uh, read it likened to a muscle. Faith is a muscle that as you exercise the muscle, so it grows and develops and gets stronger. And this morning, what I want to talk about is that kingdom characteristic of faith. Now, there's a chapter in the Bible that kind of stands out above all others in terms of describing faith. And that's Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 kicks off with faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we cannot see. And then the author to the Hebrews goes through this whole list of people from across the ages and says, by faith, such and such did this, by faith, such and such did that, by faith, such and such did that. They're set up as this kind of hall of faith, this set of examples, witnesses for us. And when we get to verse 22 of Hebrews chapter 11, we read this. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, that's the bit we just read, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. Of all the bits of Joseph's life that the author to Hebrews could have chosen, he chose the bit when he dies. Why is that? Why is that? I tell you why. It's because he died well. Hmm. He died full of faith. And this faith which he demonstrated, like the faith that we read about through all of those examples in Hebrews 11, is future-oriented. It's focused on what lies ahead. By faith, Joseph when he was dying, said these various things. So I want to draw out a few of these characteristics. There's four of them. Um, And the first is that this faith acts. The brothers come in fear and trepidation. In my opinion, they concoct this story, this message from Jacob. Oh, dad, when he was dying, said you should do this. I don't believe that's true. I believe they brought that message, but I think that's a concocted thing. I think Jacob knew that he would, that the brothers were forgiven by Joseph, but they didn't know that, or they didn't believe it, or they didn't accept it. And it's interesting, isn't it, that Joseph has displayed this amazing forgiveness, and yet the brothers don't seem to have got it. And it shows really that it's very easy, it was well, easier to kind of be forgiven by someone else or even to forgive someone else, but actually to accept that forgiveness and forgive yourself is a, is a difficult thing. And I'd encourage you to listen to Rob's talk from a couple of weeks ago where he goes into that in much more detail. But it is true that at this point, Joseph had the power now to punish his brothers. And maybe he was kind of just waiting till dad's out the way. And then I can deal with that properly. I mean, he was the prime minister of the most powerful nation in the world. He could have done what he wanted. He could have slung them into prison at a whim. That had happened to him. So why not? He could have an investigation and uncover uncover some new evidence that would convict them. He could adjust the government local plan for land use in Goshen and change it from farming to pyramid building. He could have a sort of exit, exit of all the Hebrews and kick them out, (laughs) send them out of the land. It would have been very easy for him to set things straight. And after what they did, possibly they deserved it. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. Instead, he does this. When he receives their message, he weeps. He weeps. Why? Because he realizes they just haven't got it. They haven't got it yet. And so he weeps. And then he, he calls them or they come to him and he speaks to them. And what does he say? Don't be afraid. I don't know whether you noticed the things that are repeated in this passage. I encourage you to read through this in your own time and see the things which the author mentions a couple of times. But one of them is this. He says, don't be afraid twice. Verse 19 and verse 21. Don't be afraid. And he doesn't let them off the hook. You meant it for evil. That's fairly clear. They're not off the hook. What they did was wrong. But he does underline the forgiveness that that they can experience that he is offering. And then he promises provision for them and their families and then he comforts them and then he speaks kindly to them. I mean, this is over the top. And I think he does that because he's acting in faith. Why? Well, because faith without works is dead. If you have faith, you end up obeying what God does and we call that works. James says that. And so when he's forgiving his brothers, that comes out of his faith in God. Am I in God's place? No, I'm not. And, but God would want me to forgive. It's an act of faith. And genuine faith results in genuine obedience to following in the ways of the king. And that means imitating God and developing godly character. And one of those traits is demonstrating grace and forgiveness towards others. Faith acts. Future-oriented faith shapes how we act in the present. So that's the first thing, is that faith acts. But secondly, faith focuses on God. We can interpret the past in, through any number of filters. And uh, certainly I find it very easy to look back at past events and kind of replay the events and kind of wish that this thing had been slightly different because that would have led to a slightly different outcome. My kind of interpretation of history always results in something much better in the present than I currently think it is. That's not what Joseph does here. He could have looked back and filtered things through a lens of bitterness or hatred or disappointment or letdown. Or he could even have gone for kind of denial and maybe they didn't really mean it. Could have filtered the events in all sorts of different ways. But instead, he filters it through the filter of faith. How does he do that? He focuses on God. So we read, you meant evil, but God meant it for good. You can't say that kind of thing unless you've got faith. You just can't do it. That statement is grounded in the sovereignty of God, in his belief that God is in charge of all of these events. It recognises God's hand on the events. It discerns his actions and it grasps hold of his sovereignty and says, God put this in place. God meant it for good. And so this is incredible, I think, that at the end of his life, 110 years he's been living, he can look back and he sees God's hand on everything. I love that. I want to do that. 110, that sounds quite old, but, you know, towards the end of my life, I want to be able to look back and go, yeah. God's hand, God's hand. Yeah, that was meant for evil, but God meant it for good. Yeah, that wasn't meant for the right reasons, but God meant it for good. Again and again and again and again. That behind me, as I look back, is a trail of the goodness of God acting in my life. Whatever I thought at the time, that God meant it for good. That is exercising the faith muscle. Because that's not an easy thing to do. So that's the second thing, quite brief. The next two points are longer. OK, so don't worry, you don't have to go home early. So the third thing is that faith looks ahead to the fulfillment of God's promises. And this really is where the writer to Hebrews gets his material. So let me read that verse again. Hebrews 11:22. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. I'd just like you for a moment to think about Genesis chapter 1. And now think about what we read in Genesis chapter 50. And the arc of Genesis goes from a man being placed in a garden in Eden through to a man being placed in a coffin in Egypt. What? The book starts with a clean, fresh slate, a new beginning. And as these 50 chapters unfold, we see the fall of man, we see the rise of sin, the judgment of the wicked, the fractured nature of human relationships, the creeping grip of death. Even by chapter 5, when we read that first list of the history of, of the people of Israel, we see and such and such and he died, and such and such and he died, such and such and he died, Person after person after person dies, surely, surely that's not what God meant when he placed a man in a garden. Surely it wasn't meant to end in a coffin in Egypt. When he looked at creation and went, this is good. Surely, surely that wasn't his intention. And the first part of this magnificent story that we hold in our hands, the first part ends with this coffin in Egypt. And Joseph knew about the promises of God. And he recognized that they could not and would not be fulfilled in Egypt. He knew that this coffin in Egypt that he was going to be put inside was not the end. That was not the end. And so he says, in faith, carry my bones out of Egypt. And he wasn't envisaging a thing that happened with his father about 70 years before this big procession. No, he was expecting something much more permanent than that. Now, just bear with me for a minute, because I've been thinking about this carry my bones up thing. I don't know how you get your car packed for holidays, but in our house, it kind of all gets piled in the hallway near the radiator, and then it's my job to kind of fit it somehow into the car and still leave space for the other members of my family. And I'm just thinking, if I had a coffin there as well... I mean, I've got roof bars, so maybe that's the way they would transport it as they left on the exodus, but I mean... This instruction hung around for a lot of time. Carry my bones up. Someone had to look after this coffin. Yeah, come on in, come on in, yeah, take a oh don't sit on that, that's Joseph's coffin. I mean or maybe they put a throw over it, I don't know. But but it was hanging around the three hundred and fifty years it was hanging around for. 350 years. Yeah, that's Joseph's coffin. One day, we would better carry it out of Egypt. The author to the Hebrews says that was faith speaking. Carry my bones up. Carry my bones up. Joseph knew that the promises of God could not end there. Something had to happen beyond the coffin in Egypt. And there's a bit more of a clue in uh, in chapter 50 of Genesis, because in verse 24, Joseph says to his brothers, I'm about to die. But God will surely visit you and bring you up from this land to the land which he promised on oath to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. Now, that's not just a nice little motif, you know, a nice little sign off to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. This is because God has repeatedly promised the same things. So if you turn to Genesis chapter 13, verse 15, this is God speaking to Abraham. And he says, for all the land which you see, I will give it to you and your descendants forever. That's God speaking. And when God speaks, it happens. Then a couple of chapters later in Chapter 15, in verse 7, we read God again speaking to Abraham, saying, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. And then he goes on. I really love this bit. The fact that this is in Genesis 15. God says to Abraham in verse 13, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. But I will judge the nation whom they will serve. And afterward, they will come out with many possessions, brackets, including a coffin containing the bones of your descendant, close brackets. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and then you'll be buried at a good age. And then in the fourth generation, they will return here. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. The next generation. Wow. That was the promise to Abraham. Verse 18 of chapter 15. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying to your descendants, I've given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river the river Euphrates, and then there's some other nations which they will conquer. So God promises this to Abraham, but he goes on and he promises it to Isaac. So in chapter 26 of Genesis, verse 3, God says to Isaac, travel in this land and I will be with you. Bless you, for to you and your descendants I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath which I swore to your father Abraham. So he promises it to Abraham and he promises it to Isaac. And guess what? He promises it to Jacob too. So in chapter 28 and verse 13, God says to Jacob, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give it to you and your descendants. Then in chapter 35 of Genesis, he speaks to Jacob again and says, the land which I gave to Abraham and to Isaac, I will give it to you and I will give the land to your descendants after you. Is it clear yet that when Joseph says, God will surely visit you and bring you up from this land to the land which he promised on oath to Abraham, yes, to Isaac, yes, and to Jacob, yes, that's what he's going to do. The bottom line is this. This family, the Hebrews, the Israelites, didn't belong in Egypt. Their inheritance lay elsewhere. And that's why the coffin in Egypt was not the end. Because they didn't belong there. Joseph had lived 93 out of his 110 years, that is 84.5% of his life, in Egypt. He was the prime minister. He was basically Egyptian, but he knew he didn't belong there. He knew he didn't belong there because he knew the promises of God. He'd heard them as a boy. He'd been told them by his mother. He'd been told them by his father. Remember, he's the father's son, the father's favoured son. What would they have they've talked about other than, yeah, you're going to inherit the promises, son, and these are the promises. And so he gave orders for his bones to be carried up. I love that. Didn't end in a coffin in Egypt. And so I just wonder about the kind of plans and promises which you feel are over your life. Because I think sometimes we can find or feel that they're heading towards a coffin in Egypt, to use that image. So a few years ago, I went through a period where there was significant pressure and difficulty in various areas of life. There was pressure in our marriage. There were significant difficulties at work. There were things were not going well in the church that we were part of. And I had faith and hopes for each of those areas of life. And it didn't seem to be going anywhere. In fact, I could quite easily have opened that coffin, if I'd known about this image, opened that coffin, buried it all in there, closed it, padlocked it and put it to the side for 350 years because it would have been less painful. And as I prepared this message, I kept coming back to this image of the coffin in Egypt as being representative of where some of you feel that your plans and hopes are kind of heading towards. Or maybe inside and the lid shut. I felt particularly that this related to someone in terms of their job. That maybe they took on a job with a promise of promotion. Maybe the company was quite small. There was, there was, yeah, we're going to expand and it was going to grow and, and all that kind of stuff. And actually it's just turned into disappointment. It's. Other people have kind of been appointed um, alongside you. Maybe people have been promoted over you and you feel like you're overlooked, sidelined. And I just feel that God would want to say to you, my plans don't end in a coffin in Egypt. Whatever it seems like, whatever it appears is happening, God's plans never end in that coffin in Egypt. And there may be other areas as well. Other areas of life may be relationships that were once warm and tender. And that's kind of dissipated a bit. The troubles of life mean that it's now, yeah, we rub along okay, but actually the hopes I had for it, they're kind of in this coffin in Egypt. Maybe it's just that life seems to have served up disappointment after disappointment after disappointment after disappointment. And the hopes, whatever area they were, are now just residing in that coffin. You need to hear this this morning. God's plans never, never end in a coffin in Egypt. Never, not ever. Whatever those plans are, That is never the end point. They may not look like how you envisage or imagine or want or wish them to look like, but they don't end in a coffin in Egypt. It won't always look like these things are working out. But that's where the kind of looking back and being able to say God meant it for good is so crucial. Why that exercise of the faith muscle is so important. And the circumstances you're in may be confusing, they may be challenging, they may be difficult, they may even be overwhelming, but they don't have to end in a coffin in Egypt. It may not be that you see the full fulfilment of those promises though. Abraham didn't, Isaac didn't, Jacob didn't, Joseph did kind of end up in a coffin in Egypt for 350 years before he was taken out again. So I'm not saying it's going to work out in a nice, comfortable, happy, you know, the curtain goes up sort of way. It comes down sort of way at the end. But what I am saying is that God's plans in the big scheme of things never end in a coffin in Egypt. And because Joseph believed that in faith, he was able to look death in the face and say, carry my bones up. Carry up this coffin because it doesn't end here. So faith acts, faith focuses on God, faith looks ahead to the fulfillment of God's promises, and faith anticipates the presence of God. So, by faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. And when he's dying, twice he says, God will surely visit you. I love that. He's about to die. He says, It might be a bit of a burden, but look after my coffin because you'll be carrying it. God will surely visit you. God will surely visit you. Now, we've got to remember that when Joseph said this, there was no issue for the Hebrews in Egypt. No issue. Read chapter 47, verse 27. Now Israel lived in the land of Egypt, in Goshen, where they acquired property in it and were fruitful and became very numerous. They were very happy in Egypt. Very happy. Very prosperous. They were comfortable. There was plenty of work. There was land. There was food. The famine was over. Everything was fine. Joseph says, You need to know this. God will surely visit you. And that's because if we read Genesis 50 and then we read Exodus chapter one, there is a massive contrast. Now, there's a 350 year time period between the start, the end of Genesis and the start of Exodus. That's a long time. But whereas in Genesis 50, we read of a a land being a land of provision and plenty and wealth and life and hope. By the time we read Exodus chapter one, it's become a land of oppression, of fear and of slavery. Instead of reading, as we do in Genesis 50, of Joseph as this honoured prime minister, ruling over this powerful nation. Second only to Pharaoh, we instead read in Exodus chapter 1 that a new king arose who didn't even know about Joseph. He was just a kind of footnote, if that, in Egyptian history. Instead of reading, as we do in Genesis 50, of accounts of old men dying Honoured for their service, honoured for their life, their godly following of of um, the King of Isra- the God of Israel. And as they die, they're given state funerals. Instead of that, we read of a state-sponsored genocide of male boys, with an aim of wiping out the nation. So by Exodus chapter 1, after 430 years since they came, the family came down into Egypt, it was time for God to get his people back. And that's what Joseph saw as he was dying with his eyes of faith. God will surely visit you. And so we read in Exodus chapter 3. Verses 7 and 8, the Lord said, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. And this bit, so I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, etc., etc., the land promised to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. He heard the cry of his people and he decided to come and get them. And so he visited. He appointed Moses as a spokesperson for God to Pharaoh. He sent plagues on the oppressors. He designed a Passover where the blood of a lamb would protect his people from judgment. He orchestrated an exodus of a couple of million people so they could leave bondage. And he called his son out of Egypt. God will surely visit you. But don't forget that all of those events could not have happened unless all the events that went before had happened. God had to get Israel into Egypt before he could get Israel out of Egypt. And that's what the story of Joseph is really all about. It's about how God got his people into Egypt in order that he could orchestrate the great escape. You see, without them going down into Egypt, there couldn't be the experience of oppression and the desperate crying to God. There would be no need for salvation. There'd be no requirement for a Passover. There'd be no desire in the people for an exodus. If there wasn't an exodus, there would be no giving of the law. If there's no law, then there's no tutor to lead us to Christ. There would be no miraculous entry into the promised land. There will be no inheritance for the people. There'd be no fulfillment of God's covenant promises and no pattern that Christ would follow in being called out of Egypt. You see, Israel had to go down there. And so the story of Joseph says that actually, in order for God to fulfill his promises, there has to be a journey along the way. And sometimes that journey will involve difficult things. It had to happen. And although here we have a pause, if you like, as he rests in his coffin for 350 years, as the people wait, as things get worse and worse and worse. Ultimately, they will come up out of Egypt. Why? Because God will surely visit you. That's what Joseph said. So he, t- he talked about the exodus, but he talked about something more than that as well, I think. The statement, God will surely visit you, looks ahead to something much greater. It looks to the advent of Jesus. It looks to the actual physical coming of God in the form of a baby. It's about rescuing the people of the earth from darkness and bondage of sin. And again, that's why this coffin in Egypt can't be the end. Because a coffin in Egypt has no resurrection, has no life. And that's where this whole story is heading to. You see, sin can never have the final say, never in Jesus. Death is not the inevitable end. And so Joseph says, God will surely visit you. And he looks ahead to the Exodus. I think he also anticipates something greater, but there's something more as well. There's a third stage of God will surely visit you because he's going to visit us again. And that's something we have to look forward to in faith. In this groaning, creaking and broken world, we wait in hope for him to visit again. And he will. He will return. He will set all things right. He will usher in this everlasting kingdom that will know no end. Where there's no longer any death. No longer any mourning or crying or pain. Although Genesis kind of travels from this garden to coffin, actually... Scripture travels from garden to heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, when God will visit his people again. And future-oriented faith anticipates the presence of God. This book is all about God dwelling with his people. That's where it started and that's where it ends. That's the hope we have. And so for us as kingdom people, going back to this kind of headline of our series, for kingdom people, we need to have a faith that looks like the faith that Joseph has here. Faith that enables us to walk in the way of the king, way of acting and demonstrating the kingdom to those around us. It's a faith that's securely rooted in who God is, grasps a hold of his sovereignty and won't let go of that. It's a faith that looks at the promises of God and says, even though it seems to be heading to here, actually, I know that it can't end there. Refuses to let go of the promises of God. And also, it's a faith that looks ahead to a day when he will visit us again, a day when his presence will be manifest amongst us permanently. And We sang that this morning. What does let the rain come if it doesn't mean God will visit us again? What does it mean if it doesn't mean that we're going to be a people of his presence? I'm going to finish there, but I would like us to pray. Could we stand? Yeah, Just draw near to him now. So we reflect on. This final episode in the life of Joseph. We see that above all else in this passage, he was a man who demonstrated faith. An unrelenting clinging to the promises of God. An ability to see beyond the present circumstances. To what would happen. In the fulfilment of God's plans. I think there are some of us here this morning. Who need to raise our eyes. To focus them again on Jesus. The present circumstances have crowded in. They've understandably dominated our thinking. But there's a danger that they threaten to rob us of our faith. And this morning's a chance to stand and say, I'm not going to let that happen. I've seen how God acts in the past, and I trust him for how he's going to act in the future. And therefore, I'm going to interpret my present circumstances in the light of that, not in the light of what I see, because I walk by faith and not by sight. If that's you, I'd just like you now to pray, to speak to your Heavenly Father. To commit those circumstances to him. He knows about them. He knows what's next in the story. But he also knows where it ends. Father, I pray now. That for each of us there would be a gift of faith planted in our hearts by your Holy Spirit. That you would grow that in us. You would put it in us, God, that we can, through the circumstances that we see around you, we're able to see you. We're able to look at our circumstances through you rather than the other way around. Father, would you grow faith in us? Would you remind us again of your promises? Remind us of, remind us of where this will end, what you have spoken, what you have said to us. And Father, we, may we, through faith and perseverance, take hold of the promises that you have spoken. Father, we pray that we would be a people You demonstrate your kingdom by being people of faith.